Hi, friends. Welcome back to Nate Talks to his friends about Jesus. Dude, thank goodness springtime is here. Welcome, sunshine. Oh, so good. Hey, you know we are the garage band of Come Follow Me podcast. So you get what you get. Sometimes the heater might come on. It's one take on my cell phone, but I love you. So if this is something good, if this is something that whispers Jesus to your soul, that helps you connect better with the living Son of God, hey, spread the word, spread the news, share it with your friends, and hey, one, one garage band song at a time. Let's help some people out. Uh, anyways, let's talk about Joshua. So, so here's where we're at in the story. God has commissioned Abraham and his children, which we are a part of. It's clear in your patriarchal blessing that you are um, this lineage, right? So God has commissioned these individuals to bear his image and his light to the entire world. And we see clearly from the books in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy that they are failing, But thankfully, that does not stop the goodness of God. He rescued Israel from their own self-inflicted bondage by miraculous means. He nurtured them in the desolation of the desert and even provided them with a portal to enter his presence and a law to help them bear the image of God to the world and to enrich their lives and the lives of everybody that they encounter. But the person that, that brings about a lot of this, the law, the portal, all of this, the, the great prophet Moses is dead. And so does it die out with the death of him or uh, the translation of him? Did this force of charisma, faith, and leadership, does it all evaporate well when he leaves? Thankfully, No. Much like the transition between Joseph Smith and Brigham Young, where Brigham is transformed in the presence of hundreds of people, Joshua is shown over and over in the text to be the rightful successor of Moses. Like when Brigham speaks, people see Joseph in him. Joshua does it a little bit different with actions. Uh, First of all, God commands Joshua in chapter 1. He says, There shall not any man be able to stand before thee all the days of thy life. As I was with Moses... So I will be with thee. I will not fail thee nor forsake thee. Be strong and of good courage. For unto this people shalt thou divide for an inheritance the land which I swear unto their fathers to give them. Only be thou strong and very courageous that thou mayest observe to do according to all the law which Moses my servant commanded thee. Turn not from it to the right hand or to the left that thou mayest prosper whithersoever thou goest. This book of the law shalt not depart out of thy mouth. So you're not going to be like Moses. You're not going to be telling the law, but thou shalt meditate on the law therein day and night, that thou mayest observe to do according to all that is written therein. For then thou shalt make thy way prosperous. Then thou shalt have good success. Have not I commanded thee, be strong and of good courage. Be not afraid, neither be thou dismayed. For the Lord thy God is with thee whithersoever thou goest. So basically God is like, I got your back. You may not be Moses, but I'm not asking you to be Moses. What a good message for any of us trying in the church. You're not going to be like that other person. Stop trying to compare yourself to that other person. That doesn't mean God won't have your back. Be you, be the best you, and watch how God uses that uniqueness of your soul to administer and power and bless. So remember the word of Moses, right? And 
as we hearkened unto Moses in all things, so we hearken unto thee, the people say. So Joshua affirms the law that Moses gave. And then, just like Moses, you kind of see these similarities. Joshua sends spies into the promised land. Um, and so that it's echoing what uh, Moses has done, these same sort of acts. Just like Joseph Smith started the temple worship, Brigham continues it. He's basically the only successor that really is, is into this, the only major uh, candidate for succession. I'm meaning Brigham and Joseph that, that is into the temple. So he shows that the, um, the agenda is the same for all of them. But then we get this big confirmation for everybody. One of the major manifestations for the children of Israel that Moses was a prophet was when he split the waters of the Red Sea. Well, they come to the Jordan River and guess what Joshua does? It says in chapter 3 that he has the people bear the Ark of the Covenant come to the Jordan. And when the feet of the priests dipped into the water, the waters that come down from above stood. So it just stops. And then the people passed right over and go to Jericho. Um, and when the priests that bear the Ark of the Covenant were come up out of the Jordan, then the waters of the Jordan returned to their place. So it's this, it's this cool moment of confirmation. And, and I want you to maybe think about this a little bit. You have probably had these moments of confirmation for yourself. When you um, watch President Nelson speak or make changes and you're like, yeah, I feel this. He's a prophet being led by inspiration. But as we, we observe this and we follow the prophet, let's remember the fact that whether it's Moses or Joshua or Joseph or Brigham or Russell, that's not even the point. The point is that God is in charge. The point is that God is leading his people and that this is God's kingdom. And, and the mo more we show our loyalty to God, Jesus, the more we show our loyalty to God um, by observing his teachings through his prophets, the more grace and power will begin to flow in and through us to other people. And that's what it's saying at the end of Joshua 4. All the so that, that this light flowing into them, that all the people of the earth might know that the hand of the Lord, that it is mighty, that you might fear the Lord your God forever. And, and basically... God is saying, hey, as you connect with God through following the prophet, that light is going to flow through you and you're naturally going to be able to fulfill God's commission for you in reaching out to other people in love. All right, so Joshua sent out the, these spies and then they enter into the promised land. They're ready to go, right? And um, the first place that they are going to look at taking over on this long campaign is a place called Jericho. It says in Joshua 2, 1, that Joshua, the son of Nun, sent out of Shittim two men to spy secretly, saying, Go view the land, even Jericho. And they went and came into a harlot's house named Rahab and lodged there. Wait a minute. Like, the, the spies from the righteousness of Israel, like, did you catch where they stayed? Like, they don't check into a Motel 6. They went into a prostitute's house. Now, some people, like, they want to explain this and be like, uh, like, she wasn't a prostitute. She was just an innkeeper. But you can go back to the Hebrew. The Hebrew is clear. She is a prostitute. And, and the, the people in the Old Testament are making a point. And you've got to listen to this point. Stop whitewashing. Stop covering up. Try, stop trying to explain away. Listen to what they're actually saying. 
I, I don't think we need to cover anything up. I don't think we need to dress anything up. The fact of the gospel is that Jesus was sent to those who were soul sick and he can fix anything. Watch the story. And it was told the king of Jericho saying, behold, there came men in hither to night of the children of Israel to search out the country. And the king of Jericho sent unto Rahab saying, bring forth the men that are come to thee, which are entered into thy house for they should come to search out the country. So, okay, basically, you're following it, right? The king finds out that there's spies coming into the land and they're at the prostitute's house. So they send the cops down to the prostitute's house and the cops bang on the door and be like, send out those guys. But she takes those two guys and she goes and hides them on the roof. And then she goes back down and she says, there came men unto me, but I wist not whence they were. And it came to pass about the time of the shutting of the gate when it was dark that the men went out. Whither the men went, I wot not. Pursue after them quickly, for you shall overtake them. I love this. She goes to the door and talks to the cops, and she's like, shoulders shrugged. She's like, you're right. There were guys here, but they left a long time ago. He's like, when it was closing the gate, and they already crossed the river. I bet if you run quick, you can catch them. So the cops chase after uh, these, um, these imaginary fleeing spies. And she then goes up to the spies she has hidden on the rooftop. She hides them among the stalks of flax, which are generally used for weaving and dyeing clothing. So she probably has another side hustle here. Um, and she says something interesting. She sits down with them and she says to them, I know that the Lord hath given you the land. It, here's where we go like in something awesome like she has done bad things she is a prostitute but she is ready to turn to the lord i know the lord right and guess what happens the moment she is ready to turn to the lord now you guessed it the lord is ready to turn to her she says Therefore, I pray you, swear unto me by the Lord, since I have shewed you kindness, that you will also shew kindness into my father's house and give me a true token. Like she says, I'm turning to you. I'm trusting your Lord. Give me a sign, a token, a, a way to, to show that, that you will have my back. And, and here's the token they give. Behold, when we come into the land, the spy says, thou shalt bind this line of scarlet thread in the window, which thou didst let us down by, and thou shalt bring thy father and thy mother and thy brother and thy father's house home unto thee. Now, if you have been paying attention in your Old Testament, you'd be like, dang, right now. You like, did you say dang? I don't think you said dang. I did not hear it. That means you were not paying attention at one point or another in your Old Testament study. Let me let you in on what you missed right here. Because when they just dropped scarlet thread, you should be like, whoa. Because this is a cool token. See, the other place in the Old Testament that talks about using or tying or bind on a scar binding on a scarlet thread is in the purification ceremony for someone who has been cleansed of leprosy. 
Leprosy is this unescapable darkness, this physical symbol of rot and disease, it, it, a sickening reminder of entropy, decay, and death that is just celebrated by the prince of darkness who rules this mortal sphere. But a person can be cleansed with this ritual of blood application and a scarlet thread. Are you seeing it? That's oh, beautiful. We ha- here we have a woman saturated in sin, crying out for safety. And God has her tie on this scarlet thread as a public proclamation of her faith. And everything changes for her. And when Jericho falls, the, the young men that were spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and her mother and her brethren and all that she had. And they brought out all her kindred and left them without the camp of Israel. And Joshua saved Rahab the harlot alive. And she dwelleth in Israel even unto this day. See, if you look further in the story, everything changes about her. She's not just saved from sin. She's not just saved from death but she's transformed into something noble. Like according to the the Babylonian Talmud, Rahab is the ancestress of the prophet Jeremiah. According to the gospel of Matthew, Rahab became the mother of the line from which David, the mighty king, his family sprang, and by which we have Jesus Christ. Hear this message. Rahab was a prostitute. But God is stronger. Rahab stands as evidence of the transforming power of God. By believing in the God of Israel, Rahab, a woman who submitted herself to the desires of men, found forgiveness when she submitted herself to the will of God. That's what I'm talking about. That is the gospel. That is hope. That is goodness. Wherever you're at, turn back again to to God. Say, I I know where I've been and I want to be better and watch what he does for you. Now, let's talk about this actual process uh, about Jericho and taking over the promised land. So, um, first thing they have to do in order to take over the promised land is that they take all the men and Joshua made him sharp knives and circumcised the children of Israel at the heel of the foreskins. (laughs) Oh, man. Why does he do this? Well... All the people that came out of Egypt that were male, uh, even the men of war, they died in the wilderness. And the people that came out um, were circumcised, but they that they were born in the wilderness, they had not been circumcised. So everybody that had been born in the wilderness had not been circumcised. And God is like, I need you to cut a covenant here. Can I, can I just say that I think it was a very wise transition for them to transition to performing this operation on babies so they have no memory of it. I'm just getting secondhand drama from imagining it. But why does he they why do they do this? Remember that circumcision is this idea of cutting a covenant. It is this very clear and very powerful form of allegiance. It it, it can be usually performed with a sacrificial animal being cut apart, cutting a covenant. It can be st- done sometimes as you tear your clothing. But performing it with yourself, with the foreskin, makes this very personal and very powerful. It's this ritual of dedication to God saying, I am team Yahweh. I am team Jesus. 
And so after uh, a requisite recovery period and keeping the Passover, now they are ready, covenant-bound, faithful to go into the promised land. And so as they are at this starting gate, the manna ceased. Like There is no more manna, and therefore there is no turning back. You either go in and you conquer the promised land, or you die. It's kind of like when Hernan Cortez leads an expedition into Mexico in 1519, and upon arrival, Cortez burns his ships, sending the message to his men that there is no turning back. They win or die. And within two years, Cortez and his men conquered the Aztec Empire. It doesn't hurt that they brought smallpox, etc., but not the point in this particular part of the story. The idea is that the manna ceases and you got to move forward, right? Then Joshua has an interesting experience. And when Joshua was by Jericho, he looks up and he saw a man with a, a drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua walks straight up to him and he says, are you on our side or our enemy's side? And the guy says, nay, but I come as the captain of the host of the Lord. Ooh, that's cool. Like, I didn't even know that captain of the angelic armies was an official position, but apparently this dude has it. And that the captain of the God's angels is standing there overseeing the battle. And, and again, if this idea is it's not Moses so much leading, not Joshua so much leading, but God leading. God's making it clear it's not about Israel versus Canaan, but it's a God's battle to move his plan forward to save his children. Now, we'll talk about why God wishes to bring justice to some of the groups of people uh, here in the promised land in a minute. But the, the point is, if you do things God's way, then you'll have success. If you don't, you're going to be left to your own devices and it's going to be rough. And the first two stories about entering into the promised land are going to illustrate this contrast of doing things God's way and doing things your own way. So first, God's way. As they get to Jericho, Jericho is straightly shut up because the people can clearly see that they're going to be attacked. And so nobody goes out and nobody goes in. Strong walls, very fortified. And the Lord says to Joshua, See, I have given thee, given unto thine hand Jericho. Now, like, imagine you're there and you walk up and the, the, it is completely fortified and God's like, see, I gave it to you. Wouldn't you be like, uh, no. I don't see how you've given it to us. It's a, it's a fortress with high walls full of warriors not seeing it. But here's God's promise. If you walk around the city for six days and if you will, on the seventh day, blow your trumpets and give a mighty shout, then the walls will come down. Now, I want you just for a second to rank that on military strategy. Like instead of like, I don't know, let's use a more modern example. Instead of actually practicing basketball and making a plan for how you're going to approach it, your plan is just like, we're going to walk around the court and then we're going to yell really loud. That'll get them. Like, honestly, next time you get in a fist fight, just try blowing your trumpet. See if that staves off the pain. No, it's a terrible strategy. But the question is this. Who are you going to trust? Are you going to trust your own intellect? Are you going to trust your own devices? Are you going to worship yourself? Or are you going to trust God and do what he says will work? Now, these people... 
um, are, are bred in the, the, the faith of Joshua. And so they do it. They march around the city for six days. And on the seventh day, they blow the trumpets and shout with a great shout. And the wall fell down flat and they take the city. The message of whose war it is and who is in charge is unmistakable. But immediately following this story, there's a foil. Now, remember, a foil is a character or a situation that's placed next to to another situation for the purpose of contrast in literature. So you can see the, um, the idea or the character more clearly. So anyway, right after this great victory of God, you see the inconsistency and failure of Israel when they trust themselves more than God. And this is basically the theme since the garden. Who will you worship? Will you worship yourself and the things of this world? Or will you give yourself to God and give your life to God? Here's how it goes down. As they take over Jericho, God commands that all the silver, all the gold, all the brass, all the iron should be consecrated to the Lord and go to the treasury of the Lord. But there's one Israelite named Achan who saw among the spoils this well-woven piece of uh, clothing, which it, again, you have no idea how uh, expensive it is to produce clothing back in the day, and, and a fine piece of clothing is, is very rare. He also sees 200 shekels of silver and a wedge of gold. And now God's told him to take these treasures and give it to God, but like, it's a wedge of gold. So what do you do? God's saying, I will take care of you. He's promised um, before, previously in Deuteronomy, that he will give you wells you didn't dig. Just trust me. But Achan trusts himself. He takes the gold. He looks out for number one. It's self-idolatry to the core. Um, But no one knows what he has done. So, thinking the Lord is still on their side, they go to the next city called Ai, A-I, but they no longer have the power of God sustaining them. So instead of the walls coming down, they fled before the men of Ai. And the, the men of Ai smote them. And the hearts of the people melted and became of, as water. Oh, this is pretty simple. When you align with God, you get power. When you trust yourself more than God, your hearts are going to melt like water. So they figure out what's happened. They deal with Achan and his faith, faithlessness. And then they use some Captain Moroni-like decoy ambush maneuvers to take I. And I, was, I know, I know it's Captain Moroni using some Joshua maneuvers. But anyway, you're more familiar with the Book of Mormon and Moroni. But this is just a graphic lesson in alignment. And after this graphic lesson in alignment, they begin to take over the, the promised land. Now, as you read about the takeover, uh, as a modern Christian, I promise you, you're going to feel uncomfortable. There's going to be themes like utterly destroy, kill them all. So let's address this right off the bat. First, if God is no respecter of persons, why would he favor the Israelites who we know are no shining stars of perfection? Why would God favor them over the Canaanites? Well, right off the bat, this is how God is administering his justice among the Canaanites. Do not forget in the midst of all our conversations about God's love and mercy, 
that mercy is founded upon a foundation of God's righteousness, dependability, and justice. Because as slacker as the Israelites are, the Canaanites are no buenoer. I know that's a great word, isn't it? For example, if you look back at Deuteronomy 18, it will give you a detailed list of sexual sin practiced by the Canaanites at the time. And I'm not going to go through it, but it's, it's extensive and bad. So it's pretty depraved on that front. And then you can add to that the fact that the Canaanites are ritually sacrificing their own sons and daughters, their children, to God's by burning them. You can look back in Deuteronomy 12. Okay, knowing that, hopefully you can sense why God is obligated to bring about justice. Add to the fact, this the fact that most of the language about utterly destroying is not accurate. It's just how people talk back in the day. It's how war accounts were formed. We see this all over the place back in ancient accounts. This sort of hyperbole riddles the, the accounts in ancient world. You, you can look up Pharaoh Mernapatef. I slaughtered that. Uh, but I'll, I'll spare you account. Like the idea is basically... You don't even need to to go there. But he's like, I killed them all. But he didn't. Um, Like basically over and over again, it it just claims this utter destruction. But you can clearly see in context uh, that it's hyperbole. But you don't even need to go to these other accounts to know that it is hyperbole. The text in Joshua itself admits that the destruction of all the Canaanites is far, far, far from total. For example, Joshua 15, 63. As for the Jebusites, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the children of Judah could not drive them out. But the Jebusites dwell with the children of Judah at Jerusalem unto this day. Again, next chapter over. The children of Ephraim, And the children of Manasseh, they drave not out the Canaanites that dwelt in Gezer, but the Canaanites dwell among the Ephraimites unto this day. Or the next chapter, Joshua 17, the children of Manasseh could not drive out the inhabitants of those cities. They did not utterly drive them out. It goes on and on, but you get the point. So there's more though because... There are all these admonitions uh, later on not to marry or go after Canaanite gods. How could you marry someone who's utterly destroyed? In addition, the claims of utter destruction, there's also these claims that, that Joshua conquers vast territories in one day or a short period of time. Don't get caught up on this. Again, this is a common ancient war hyperbole. If you want to do a deep dive and read the uh, the, the account of Tiglath Pilisar, uh, I think he's an Assyrian if I'm remembering right. Um, yeah, uh, you're, 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 okay, it's boring. I'm not going to read it to you, but just trust me that it is saturated with the same sort of distance hyperbole, okay? So here's what I want you to remember. As you read these accounts of conquest, know, number one, 
It is about the application of justice upon some pretty depraved individuals. We're talking about people who are burning children as sacrifice. That's messed up. Number two, know that these individuals can turn to God at any point, And the moment they do, like Rahab, they are granted peace. Number three, remember that much of the account of annihilation are, is just straight up hyperbole in historical context. And number four, remember that this, these commands of eradication are specific commands to a specific people at a specific time and place for a specific reason. Got that? You good? You okay? Okay. So after their repentance, they take the city of Ai. They make peace with the Gibeonites because the Gibeonites are tricksy little hobbitses. And then they proceed over the next couple of years to wreck Jerusalem, Hebron, Jarmuth, Lachish, Eglon, Gezer, Geber, Geder, Homath, uh, Adar, Libna, Adela, Mechada, Methel, Tapana, Hefer, Aphek, Lasheron, Madon, Hazar, Shimron, Meron, Ashephath, Tanak, Megiddo, Kedesh, Jokniam, Dor, Gilgah, and Tirzah. Test me on that perfect pronunciation. What now, Garage Band? Anyway, with the conquering done, it's now time to divide up this promised land. This land that was promised way back to Abraham and his descendants hundreds of years before now. And so this land divvying up starts with Caleb, Joshua's fellow loyal spy from way back in the day. Uh, One of only two OGs to enter the promised land. And as they're talking about the promised land, Caleb says it like this. Then Caleb said unto Joshua, Thou knowest the thing that the Lord said unto Moses, the man of God, concerning me and thee in Kadesh Barnea. Forty years old was I when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land. And I brought him word again as it was in mine heart. Nevertheless, my brethren that went up with me made the heart of the people melt. He's like, everybody else was out. But I wholly followed the Lord my God. And Moses swear on that day, saying, Surely the land whereon thy feet have trodden shall be thine inheritance and thy children's forever, because thou hast wholly followed the Lord thy God. And now behold, the Lord hath kept me alive. And he said these 40 and five years, even since the Lord spake this word unto Moses, while the children of Israel wandered in the wilderness. And now, lo, I am this day fourscore and five years old. That's 85 of you who, 85 years old for those of you who don't speak old timey. He says, and yet I am as strong this day as I was in the day that Moses sent me. As my strength was then, even so is my strength now for war, both to go out and to come in. Now, therefore, give me this mountain whereof the Lord spake in that day. And Joshua blessed him and gave unto Caleb Hebron for an inheritance. Do you hear that language Caleb is using? Caleb is saying, I have been faithful. I I trusted in the promise of God without it being manifest for 45 years. But because of his faithfulness, because of his loyalty, he can stand with boldness and say, give me this mountain. Basically, he's saying, I did my part. I can rightly claim the reward. 
this is true. The Book of Mormon teaches God manifesteth himself unto all those who believe in him by the power of the Holy Ghost. Yea, even to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people, mighty, working mighty miracles among the children of men according to their faith. This is huge. When we are faithful, when we are loyal, and it's not a certain level of faithfulness, just be like, I'm not faithful. Stop this nonsense. If you believe, you can rightly claim it, okay? Well, this is why we believe in religion and not just ethics. We are claiming miracles. Like that, thy faith hath made thee whole was repeated so often by Jesus that it almost became a chorus, Elder Oak says. We hear this in modern scriptures, Doctrine and Covenants 130. There is a law irrevocably decreed in heaven before the foundations of this world, upon which all blessings are predicated. And when we obtain any blessing from God, it is by obedience to that law upon which it is predicated. Like, when we are connected to Jesus Christ, when we take that sacrament and say, I want to be thy son and thy daughter. When we show we are willing, not when we're perfect, when we show we are willing, then we can stand with boldness and claim blessings. Because Jesus Christ is our advocate. It's not about our goodness, it's about his goodness. And Jesus will plead our cause with the Father. So if you've fallen short, repent and turn again to God. Forgive those that have harmed you and then boldly claim the blessing. Say, give me this mountain. Go to God with faith and trust and confidence in his will and ask for miracles. I, I, I love when people do this. President Monson told stories of, of people boldly claiming these miracles, saying, give me this mountain. He said in, in 1965, um, President Monson, he was then Elder Monson, was assigned to supervise the missions of the South, South Pacific, which sounds really cool. So he had Australia, New Zealand, and the islands of Polynesia. And the first time he visited Samoa, he visited this small village of Saniatu. And there he spoke at a church school where there's this large gathering of small children. As the, the closing hymn was announced, Elder Monson, he felt compelled to personally greet each of the 247 children. But he looks at the clock and there's not enough time. And so he pushes off that impression. But then just prior to the closing prayer, he feels it again, this strong impression to shake the hand of each child. So he tells this uh, to the congregation and it's crazy. The, the, the teacher there and the children are overcome with joy. And the teacher tells him, he said, when we learned that a member of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles was, was coming, I told the children if they would earnestly pray and exert great faith, the apostle would be impressed to greet each child with a personal hand clasp. President Monson is like, I couldn't hold back the tears as each of these precious children walked past, shook my hand, and whispered a sweet talofalava. Give me this mountain. Claim it. Go forth with boldness. On another occasion, uh, he's back in um, Samoa, 
And uh, he, uh, President Monson and President Hubie Brown, met with local members who were in the middle of an extreme drought. Uh, And the members had been fasting and praying for the end of the drought and asked President Brown and President Monson to join with them in praying for water. He said, so we did it. And then during the general meeting, we heard a clap of thunder. And soon the heavens opened and the rain descended, making such a noise that one could scarcely hear as the rain pounded upon the tin roof of the building. President Brown turned to President Monson and said, no, we got it turned on. How do we turn it off? President Monson goes on. He says, as we concluded the meeting, we went to the small airport. We overheard a New Zealand pilot who had just landed speaking with one of the airline personnel. He said, I don't understand it. Not a cloud in the sky except over the Mormon school in Mapusanga. President Brown turned to me and said, go tell him why. And I gladly did. Give me this mountain. Ask for miracles. Go boldly. I'm not guaranteeing they all happen. God has his timing. He has his will, but it shouldn't stop you from asking. We worship a mighty God. This is not a list of behaviors. This is worship of a divine being. Go to him. And remember, he is not your vending machine. He will act as he will. He is divine and supreme. But go to him. Ask and ye shall receive. Knock and it shall be opened unto you. Give me this mountain. I am willing and I am faithful and I am team on your team 100%. I am your family. If, if a father knows how to give good gifts, how much more than your, uh, your heavenly father? So following Caleb's request for land, the book of Joshua spends the next several chapters describing the inheritance boundaries for each tribe. And it is insanely specific and boring because it's like reading about the description of a map without actually having a map or pictures to go by. And we may ask why go into so much boring detail, but the point is that God is faithful. Like what he is showing them is he's like, God promised Abraham and he's kept his promise. In chapter 21, verse 45, it says, There failed not aught any good thing which the Lord had spoken into the house of Israel. All came to pass. Nothing failed. Now, it, it may not always come in the way we think or in the time we presume, but God will always come through. Trust that. Right in stone, build a monument, raise an Ebenezer. It's never going to change. God is faithful. So that brings us to the final question of the book of Joshua. It is, God is faithful. Are you? In Joshua 23, Joshua calls all Israel to him. And just like Moses of old, he sits them down and he says, You have seen all that the Lord hath done. Be therefore very courageous to keep and do all the things that are written in the book of the law of Moses that ye come not among these nations, that they remain among you, neither make mention of the name of their gods, nor cause them to swear, cause to swear by them, neither serve them, nor bow yourself down to them, but cleave unto the Lord your God as you have done to this day. It's all about who you're going to worship. Don't worship anything else but the true God. If you cleave to God, one man of you shall chase a thousand. God will make you more powerful. For the Lord your God, he it is that fighteth for you. As he hath promised you, take good heed, therefore, unto yourselves that ye love the Lord your God. And behold, this day I'm going the way of all the earth. I'm going to die. And you know in all your hearts and in all your souls 
that not one thing hath failed of all the good things which the Lord God spake concerning you. All are come to pass unto you, and not one thing hath failed thereof. God has all come, he has come through. Now, it hasn't been smooth for him, but God has come through. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in truth. Put away the gods which your father served on the other side of the flood and in Egypt and serve ye the Lord. And if it seem evil unto you to serve the Lord God, the Lord, Choose you this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods which your father served that were on the other side of the flood or the gods of the Amorites in whom's land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. What a beautiful moment. Choose today what and who you will serve. That really is the only question in the gospel. You've seen uh, Joshua says uh, 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 what God did for Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Joshua. You know what kind of being our father is without question. The question is what kind of being are you? We all have a tendency to follow our fallen nature, but we also all have light. We have spirit. We have it in our souls and we get to choose. As you go through your day, which will you honor? Will you follow the God of this world who preys upon our fallen nature? Or will you serve the God of light? Choose you this day whom you will serve, period. As you are in class, as you're with your family, at work, on the road, at the store, who's your God? As Sister Nelson said recently in the young adult, um, single adult fireside, that's really the only question you need to ask. The way you talk, walk, uh, and are in the world can be a way of honoring God. It's just choosing who you worship, right? There, there's a young man named Cole who talks about his decision to choose to serve the Lord. And I like his story because it's a little different than you might expect. Because he says, quote, my story is one of being broken. I was a kid who grew up and had every opportunity I could. I had leadership experiences within every sports team that I played. And honestly, not a lot for me went wrong. I'd had every desire as a young child to serve a mission and teach the people about Jesus Christ. And I got called to serve as a missionary in Argentina. But when I arrived, I started to have really bad medical problems. I had migraines. And these migraines were so terrible that I stopped sleeping. And I remember every day, it was just, just a miserable experience. I'd sleep maybe two or three hours a night, and when I woke up, we would wander the streets, and my head hurt so bad. And I started to experience severe anxiety and depression. I didn't realize that that's what it was. It got so bad. Periods of rapid weight loss and weight gain, random dry heaving on the side of the road, and just praying every day, spending hours at night on my knees, 
just hoping that I could go to sleep and hoping I could get out of this state. We had a leader, he says, that was over all of the missionaries in our area, and I'd been discussing with him my struggles that I was having and how I could overcome them. And one day he called me and he said, do you trust me? I said, well, yeah, I trust you. And he says, would you do anything I asked you to do? And I said, yes. And he said, we're sending you home tomorrow. And I automatically felt this lifted burden. It was humbling because they, they said, you need to go see a psychologist. And I went to the first psychologist and he said, I don't know what's wrong with you. I can't figure any of this out. So I got referred to another psychologist. And that's where my life changed. I sat down with the psychologist and he said, what if you're never a missionary again? Are you okay with that? I said, no. I said, what if you have to be okay with it? And over a series of months, he helped me realize that sometimes it's okay to accept that, to accept what God gives you and to be humble enough to learn what he is trying to teach you. I'd played sports my entire life. And if a coach told me that, that I was going to play a different position, I'd say, no, I'll play the position I want to. But meeting with this psychologist, he told me sometimes you need to learn to play a different position in your life and to be okay with it. And I became okay with it. And he told me that, that there's this group of missionaries that had similar experiences that I had that, that are still struggling with anxiety years later. And he said, and we study meditation. And my, my initial response was, no, that, that's strange. And I remember walking into the meeting and still feeling pretty broken and looking for peace in my life. And then walking out of that, that meeting where we practiced meditation that day, I felt like a new person within me. I felt this sense of calmness that I had never experienced before. And I learned that sometimes the, the feeling of God or Jesus Christ in your life is just calm. And the second that we can let go of all our worries and our distractions, and we can trust Jesus and let them go, they can just vanish. We can let our minds settle down for a couple of minutes. And it's in that type of calmness that we can see the reality of God's hand in our life. I had never felt his love or the emotions of a relationship with Christ on a day-to-day -day basis as much as I do now because meditation has allowed me to be so open to the feelings that he had, he had given me. I look back now and I realize that my experience on a mission was the most positive thing for me because it, it gave me a chance to realize that it's okay to be broken. And I think God's grace lies in the fact that sometimes he'll break you down to build you up into the person that you've never been before. And I think for me that maybe I was too prideful my whole life to realize that there were changes that I needed to make. And the grace for me was in the fact that it was okay to change. It was okay to be broken enough to realize I needed to change. End quote. Choose ye 
choose you this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods of your fathers or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.